Hey, everybody. Welcome to your favorite creatively conscious mortality podcast, You're Going to Die, the podcast. For those of you joining for the first time, uh, I do need to just let you know you are going to die. Um, It's just like a precursor, a disclaimer, a caveat for our time together. Um, You need to be someone who is going to die to be able to really partake in the content here. Um, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I don't know. I just want, I, I both wanted to say that and I wanted to make that noise. They do not relate. I'm just doing things I want to do. Um, and so thank you for listening. Uh, really, yes, welcome. Uh, this is Ned. And um, let's just get right into it. I want to refer quickly back to the last episode with Wesley Schultz, something he said in our conversation together, Wesley Schultz of the Lumineers. Um, Really wonderful episode. If you haven't heard it yet, go back to it. Go listen to it. Not yet, but after this episode. Um, But one thing he said in our conversation was he hopes that I'm interviewing more stand-up comics or stand-up comics at all. (laughs) And, uh, you know, he's just trying to make this point about, like, what can be said, like, how we need to just speak our truth to really be authentic in the world and how um, that practice, that particular kind of work, what that that is for someone who's an entertainer and needs to make people laugh and where that intersects with this mortality conversation, this being with the dark parts and the grief and the loss and the hard parts of being mortal. Um, And this conversation today is perfect follow-up to him asking about that, asking after that. So I'm just going to kind of get into it. I just want to share it with you. And I know I say that a lot. And then I talk a lot. I say, I'm not going to do this. And then I do it. I say, listen, I'm not going to talk about how much this means to me, but how much it means to me is So um, I'm really practicing self-control for you. I care about you and I want to practice self-control for you. Uh, So yes, let's do this. Tawny Plattis. Tawny is a voice actor, content creator, and comedian from San Diego, California. In 2017, she created and produced the Dirty Bits podcast with her late husband, George. After he passed away in their home on November 8th, 2019, Tani coped with the trauma by turning their podcast into the show now known as Death is Hilarious. The sarcastically titled podcast explores how creatives and other people working in the grief space use comedy to cope with grief, trauma, and loss. She then went on to found the nonprofit organization Death is Hilarious Grief Relief Foundation, an organization that provides no-cost services like one-on-one mentorship programs, peer-led support groups, professional-led groups and talks, resource connections, and podcast production services with a humorous, realistic, 
and death positive approach for individuals experiencing grief. And so the last I'll say before we dig into this conversation is to refer to the starting point of all of this for Tani is the death of her husband, George. And that's right where we're going to start. Before we go anywhere, we start there. So enjoy this episode of You're Going to Die, the podcast with Tawny Plattis. It is quite a journey. I actually had a crush on him when we were in, well, you know, I like my men a little older. He was in seventh grade. I was in sixth grade. Dang. And I know, scandals, scandals upon scandals. <laughs> And we were growing up, we were like in junior high in San Diego in 2003. So I just saw this flippy haired surfer boy walking through the halls every day. And I was like, oh, "Oh, be still my heart. That is Johnny Tsunami. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) I just had a huge crush on him. He was Mr. Cool. He was very popular. I look like Wednesday Adams and live in San Diego with Barbies. So I'm like, there's no way this is ever going to happen. I'm just going to admire and fantasize from afar. Yes. And we actually ended up being introduced at a mutual friend's birthday party when we were 22. That's when we actually officially met. Mm. And, you know, I was like, I'll hook up with George Plattis. (laughs) I was like, I never thought I'd be able to do that. (laughs) Live out some high school fantasies here. Absolutely. And um, we ended up falling in love that night Mm. just immediately, immediately. But we were very practical about it. We're very like, you know, sciencey atheists, like hold card, like a cold, hard fact types. Mm -hmm. And even though we knew we fell in love that night, we were like, okay, we can't just like be morons and move in together and start our lives together. So let's like Google all this stuff and see what the average time frame is for people doing things like this. Mm-hmm. So we like marked it out on a calendar. We like plotted this all out. We're like, okay, if we still feel this way about each other in three months, then we'll say, I love you. And we'll start making plans. Mm-hmm. If we still feel this way in a year, then we'll move in. And the year mark of when we met, because that's the average time that most people move in together is after being together for a Mm. year. He showed up at my door at midnight on the one year mark of us being together, Mm -hmm. dating and seeing each other. And it was just, it was so romantic. It was so cute. He was so excited. And um, yeah, we, that was uh, 2013 and we got married in August of 2016 because he needed health insurance. So I just rolled over in bed and proposed to him. I was like, hey, you need to get on my health plan. You know, this is this isn't going to fly for you, especially with your terminal illness mm-hmm. here. <laughs> so um, he was like, oh, my God, yes, I'll marry you. <laughs> and we went and did that. We went and eloped. And I was able to get him on my health plan, which was very important because he was born with something called hypoplastic left heart syndrome or right heart syndrome, and when, which means he had— Go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. say it, which means he had— yeah, he he had a single ventricle instead of two. He had three chambers in his heart mm-hmm. instead of four, and his heart was a mirror image on his chest. And that comes with a lot of comorbidities, too. So he had a lot of health problems, but he was always very strong. He always was very resilient. Like, he always landed on his feet. The doctors were always like, oh, my God, you look so good. Like, you're a weightlifter. Like, he just—this is incredible. Like, nobody would ever know that you had a, you know— one in 300,000 person heart condition. This is wild. So 
even though he told me like, hey, I could die at any moment. The most common thing that people die of with the condition I have is sudden unexplained death. I never really thought it was going to happen when we were in our 20s. I was like, yeah, 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 we'll get into our 40s together, and that's sad, and I'll be a widow when I'm, like, really young, but, you know, and then you're going to die when you're, like, relatively young, but, like, medicine's moving faster. Maybe we'll even Mm -hmm. get into our 50s together. Um, And then in 2019, he started having a lot of respiratory issues before it was cool, before it was trendy, you know? Right. And uh, (laughs) so he was in and out of the hospital with, like, lung surgeries. He was on oxygen, but he was responding really well to treatment. So at that point, we're like, okay, maybe like we have five to 10 years. And I was like getting ready for that. I'm like, okay, maybe I'm a widow in my thirties. You know, um, one day I came out of my office and he was on the floor. Um, I was 28 and I, you know, frantically tried to resuscitate him on the phone with 911. Paramedics got there. They gave it the good old college try. He was gone. Mm -hmm. Um, And when that happened, my first thought was like, this is the only person who's ever like loved me unconditionally. That's it. You know, like I don't have family. I don't have parents, like nothing like that. And George was my best friend. He was my business partner. We had a comedy podcast together. I'm a voice actor. And he helped me with like the admin work, the tech work. We we ran a, you know, production company together, the whole nine yards. We did everything together. We were very best of friends. And I was like, I don't want to be, I'm like, I'm completely alone in the world now. Like, nobody's going to be here for me. Nobody's going to be by my side. I wasn't even thinking about our dog at that time. I'm like, you know, his parents love the dog. The dog loves his parents. She'll be fine. I'm going to end my life. I don't want to be alive anymore. Mm. And as I'm holding his body and I'm thinking that, okay, I'm going to unalive myself while I'm holding his body, be with him, then they can just bury us together. The trauma support specialist and that they brought on the scene for times like these and the paramedics were there and they're like trying to get me up off his body and take me outside Mm. so they can put him in the big black bag and take him away. And I'm thinking, oh, that's going to mess up my plans. You know, I'd like to keep the body, please. Mm -hmm. But you can't say that because then they 5150 your ass if you're like, oh, no, I'd like to kill myself. Could you please leave that? Like, (laughs) I have a plan. Yeah, (laughs) You can't tell them that. Right. (laughs) Yeah. So um, the next thing that pops into my head, which I said, was, yeah, I'd actually really like you to leave the body with me, but I guess you can't because then you're liable to end up with like a Norman Bates situation from Psycho, and that's no good. Mm -hmm. And they started cracking up because paramedics are sickos. Like, Mm. they deal with their trauma with dark humor, too, trauma support specialists, anybody who works in, like, space like that where you see a lot of horrific things all the time. Yeah. Most of them deal with it with dark humor. Right. And I, as a comedian, as a performer and entertainer, I hear that laughter, and I feel that, like, wash of, like, happy chemicals go Mm -hmm. over me. I'm like, oh, oh, that feels good, Mm -hmm. you know? And so the next thing I said was, or maybe you could leave them, and I could just sling them over my shoulder, kind of weekend at Bernie's it, see how long people even notice before he's dead. Mm -hmm. And they started laughing again, and I just kept going. I just Mm -hmm. kept making jokes about it. And I was like, okay, so maybe I can still connect with people. Maybe there is still a reason to live, even if nobody loves me anymore, I can still make people laugh. And that's pretty close. That's pretty close. So that, I literally, it was a survival mechanism for me. My, my brain switched to like, you know, you need, you need to survive. You need to like get something that is not going to make you die. It was complete survival mechanism Mm -hmm. on the spot. It, it saved my life that day. Yeah. Um, that's a lot. 
thank you for, I know, right? for sharing <laughs> all of that. Um, I mean, the, the question maybe listeners have and something I feel and had been thinking about leading up to this is like when you have room knowing that the the humor saved your life, literally, when and how does the like grief strike? When is the the like weeping and sobbing? And I feel like even in balance to having the humor uh, and even having it be a part of your work, I just feel like it's so interwoven with who you are as a comedian and uh, and and a creative. Um, do you feel the grief strike? Is it hard to make room for that? I mean, it seems so wild. It's just like cinematic to imagine you making jokes so immediately <laughs> and that it was a survival, you know, moment, like literally not just connected to the loss, but to feeling suicidal and but like when when I'm sure were you weeping on the body at that point too? Like what was like mm-hmm. when were the tears like and when do they come now? Or do it's, they? It's I'm really I'm really glad that you asked that because a lot of people do have, they're like, oh well she's fine. You know, she's totally cool. She's making jokes, she looks good, she's fine. It's something that's very cyclical. Mm-hmm. It's very cyclical. And at the time, too, it was like I was bouncing back and forth between breaking down, sobbing, and then making the joke. Like, my body was, like, almost forcing me to take a breath. Yeah. You know, like, it was forcing me to, like, have that break from the horror show that I had an upfront seat to. Mm-hmm. And I remember, like, I, I made a lot of jokes that day, too. Like, they they were going through the house, and they were, you know, because he was very young, so they have to check everything out. They were like— you know, uh, we're, we're going to just, like, go through here, go look in the bedroom and everything, you know, just, just check everything out. Is there anything, like, you know, in the house? And they were concerned for my safety because I was very devastated. And I was like, I didn't really totally understand what they were saying at first. Like, I was like, what? And I was like, oh, they're asking if I have a gun, you know, basically. Yeah, without saying That's what they're it. trying to get at. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So well, I was you like, that's that funny. you were suicidal? Had you, had you uttered that out loud or do you just— could they just sense that that was something that was occurring for you? I think they could sense what it was mm-hmm. because I was I was screaming and weeping on the floor. Mm-hmm. It was horrific. It wasn't just oh I'm so sad. It was I. It was like a banshee. Mm-hmm. It was horrendous. And I, I think they were like you know yeah do you have anything? And so I instead of going like you know no I don't have a firearm or anything like that. I was like. Well, you know, he's really hot and, you know, I like him a lot. So we have like a lot of weird sex toys in the bedroom. Is that what you're asking about? Like, and they started laughing. (laughs) And it was funny because I remember one of the paramedics looked at me and she was like, you're going to be okay. Mm -hmm. She was like, she's like, you're going to make it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because of the reaction I was having. Mm. She was like, you're going to be all right. Mm-hmm. And she told me that. And that's something that I've always remembered was her just like, you know, laughing in between this with me, mm-hmm. you know, like laughing with mm-hmm. me and sitting there with me. She was there for hours. Like her shift ended and she stayed with me just because I was, I didn't have anybody else. And um, she was, I, I kept saying, making those jokes and she would laugh and she goes, you're going to make mm-hmm. it. She goes, there's a lot of strength in you. And she goes, you don't feel it now. You're not going to see it now. Or maybe you do, but she goes, you're going to be all right. Mm. These are the, you're one of the kinds of people that makes it. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say like, what do you think she meant? And so it's good to hear, like she put words to it. Cause I feel like there's so often the like, you'll be okay. It's like, what the hell do you mean? Mm-hmm. Like, I'm definitely not, or I don't feel it. And to have her sense something specific mm-hmm. about you and how you were dealing, 
Because I, so the way I remember with my mother's death is I, I, I know I laughed that day. And I know that mm. I laughed and it was like elation or even ecstasy mm. too. And I, I, I'm so sort of struck by your version of it that it was like more laughter and more joking. And it's because like, that's like what you needed and it needed to be erratic and it needed to move, like you said, in cycles from sobbing and wailing like a banshee Mm -hmm. to like making extreme jokes too that are probably uncomfortable for some people, but also relieving because you just need that version of catharsis too. And I wonder if people going back to what I'd mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, it's like, it's, it means so much to hear the other parts to the weeping and wailing and the banshee, you know, like version of you because it is a cycle and they're dependent on each other and the extremeness of them too. And while I, I'm, I guess this is funny for me to acknowledge this, like I was going to say, well, you, you wouldn't make a podcast with the, the banshee screaming, wailing version of you as the host. <laughs> You'd make a podcast and, and stand up comedy based on the like funny, dark version of you. So people don't get to see that. And it's funny for me to say that because so often I'm the host that's like weeping and crying uh, in the microphone. <laughs> but there, you know now that there's a lot of comedy and humor too. And uh, I guess it, it's nice for me to hear it and, and, and like matters a lot to, for me to hear all the parts because I do think they're like, they're dependent, like your grief and its expression is dependent on your like joy and laughter and humor um, also being fully expressed. And you just so immediately, I'm wondering if this, this paramedic is like seeing all of that happening in a way, maybe even most people in life, in your life, ever got to because she was there right when it was like unfolding after the death. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And just, just that relatability too. you know, she, she saw me. I always make that joke. Like it's like a Mad Max, Mm -hmm. the recent one where you have the war pups Mm -hmm. that go witness me, Mm -hmm. you know, they want to be seen everybody. That's what that means. Everybody wants to be seen. They want to. They want to have that acknowledgement, and that's what it felt like. It felt like I was. It felt like I was being seen. I was being witnessed. Mm-hmm. I wasn't alone. Because if you're being seen, that's the opposite of isolation. The comedy is the break. It's the relief. It's like I'm hurting so bad. I don't want to feel like this anymore. I need a relief from it. That's where that comes mm-hmm. from. If you can, if you can laugh at something that is scary, it doesn't have power over you because mm-hmm. it's absurd. So for me, it's like that, that's where that comes from. And it's, it's random too, as far as like the breaking down goes. Like I'll just be going about my day and then there's like this overwhelming feeling that starts to overcome me. And I'm like, I need to cry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I need to go lay down. I need to be curled up in the fetal position. But I, I give, I give it that time. Mm-hmm. You know, I give all of those emotions their space and their time to be recognized. So then. I have found that to be very helpful as far as like being able to continue moving forward is like whenever I have that feeling, I let myself, I give myself permission to feel it. So, you know, I I think, I think it's daily and I think it's like, 
you you feel you feel that sadness and you feel that grief every day and sometimes it's just worse than others sometimes it's better than others mm-hmm. but it's very similar to chronic illness mm-hmm. i find grief mm-hmm. where you get it you you start to figure out your triggers you start to figure out your your things that work to keep it manageable. Some days it's just really bad. Some days you mess up. Sometimes there's other triggers. It kind of evolves, you know, I think like IBS or something, mm-hmm. you know, you're like, well, I could used to eat that. Now I can't yes. like that hurt my stomach. Yeah. Or, wow. That doesn't hurt my stomach anymore. You know, <laughs> like very similar, mm. very similar. So I, that's how I, I think of, of grief and, and trauma. It's, it's very similar to chronic illness. It kind of always evolves and you evolve with it. It's Ned. Just wanted to check in real quick with you. I wonder if I say like, hey, you, rather than hey, everybody, if it makes you feel like I'm really with you. And, and, and you know what? That's what I hope. So I'm going to try that out as I continue forth with the podcast, recording little moments like this. It's you I'm talking to. How are you? How are you dealing with this episode? How's it going? Um, and I don't mean that lightly. I actually mean it like it's a lot, this conversation, the stuff that comes up. It's intense um, being in this space, this this death and dying, this mortality, the grief. Um, but um, I believe we can do it. And I don't say that condescendingly. I say it like I feel compelled more and more to say to the people that are in these spaces, which is we need more practice at being with this stuff. Now, granted, this isn't the like, oh my gosh, listen to Jason Bateman and Will Arnett um, and... Uh, God, I forgot his name. It's just, is it Seth? No, it's Sean, Sean Hayes. Um, you know, this isn't just like a light conversation with George Clooney. Um, it's intense. And often when people describe how the podcast matters to them, they talk about it like when I need a good cry, I listen to your podcast and that's fine. You know, it's like, that's what I kind of hope for. I want you to laugh too. And I hope you are today a little bit. Um, I want you to feel alive. I want you to feel like some part of you connects with some part of what's happening here in your ear. Um, especially like the the things you carry in your heart. I really do hope that's that there's connections happening there. Like you're reminded you're not alone listening to this podcast. Especially those of you out there that have lived through things like this already. We all will, and most of you already have. So why aren't we in like community more, talking out loud about it? That we are. There are places more and more, but that's what we're committed to. So hopefully that's what it's doing for you, offering you some of what you need in those ways. And um, we're just going to keep doing more of it, keep putting out the eps and doing all the workshops, doing the events, doing all the things. So let me just keep it succinct so that I don't every episode just fall into the trap of like, here's 30 things you can do. Um, I will say this. I will say what what you could do right now, two things I'll say. you Okay, I'll say three things. One thing is just share this episode with someone you know it'll matter for them. You already thought about them. You thought, oh, Jimbo. Jimbo would love this episode. Jimbo would love what Tawny said about this, that, and the other. 
Jimbo would need to hear Ned crying um, and just send it to them. Just click on the share option for whatever way you're listening to this and send it off. And that probably is my biggest ask is that's how we grow. And that's actually how we get more support um, by growing and connecting to more community. More support. More support looks like that, but it also looks like, you know, financial means to make this happen. And the most obvious way you can do that is by becoming a patron through our Patreon account, patreon.com forward slash YG2D. You can click the link in the show notes, but also just look up You're Going to Die uh, on Patreon and you'll find the page that supports this podcast. And you become a patron for as little as $1 a month. You can spend $50 a month. You can spend $5 a month. You can do it all at once. Just send us your money as a contribution right away. And keep in mind, we're a 501c3 nonprofit. So it actually does count as a write-off, giving money to our organization to support what we do things like this. And then the third thing I'd say is just like click the little star in your Spotify app if you're listening to us there. Click the ratings. I seen y'all doing it. The numbers are climbing. Go into your Apple podcast app and click the star and leave a few words. We haven't had any words in a while in the Apple podcast app and we read those words and they matter to us. So maybe a few of you out there can just take a minute to click on that and just say, hey, I love this because of this. But that, all of that, all those things help this podcast be in the world more and more. We appreciate you, but more than anything, we're grateful that you're listening. That really matters to us first and foremost. So thank you from the bottom of our hearts to the inside of your ear. So this week I came across a social media post from our very own Nick Jaina, producer and sound engineer for You're Going to Die, the podcast. And um, he just said something I needed to hear. He, he wrote something and shared something that I needed to hear and that his community needed to hear. And that I think artists, uh, passionate creatives working in the hustle, you know, if you know what I mean when I say the hustle, these words are for you. And Nick and I talk a lot about this stuff, you know, like what it means to do what we love and what we care about with this blink of an eye lifetime that we have, this fragile fleeting stretch of time that's gone in an instant. It deserves so much, I think, of us to honor our time here, to honor that we're alive, to honor that we're a part of this thing. And the things it deserves are sometimes so hard to accomplish and keep doing in the context of a consumerism, capitalist-focused system for the most part, and certainly, especially in certain cultures. All the people who decide this is what I must do and I can't stop. But, but I would say that there's a through line of that it's, it's tricky, it's difficult. And it's also like partly difficult to just like keep being vulnerable and raw and real and opening up these parts of ourselves that we know need to be shared and said and written and sung and made and painted and put forth, recorded and put forth into the world, not knowing if it really matters. 
And, and, and so the reason why I asked Nick if we could share this in the podcast today is for all those reasons, but also really it lands in the center of the beginning of you're going to die and the through line from the very beginning of you're going to die, which is that it is this space for us to share the thing we have never shared before maybe or that we need to share more than anything else in our life. And a lot of times it's like the creative expression of it, the spontaneity of the story, the spontaneity of our vulnerability, the work of a song that's woven into our grief and our mortal experience, the poetry that, that is bound in our fleeting, fragile existence. Like that's, that is part of what you're going to die is committed to. And so these words from Nick Jaina belong here. The hustle. To be an artist requires a great imagination. You have to imagine something that isn't there and then defiantly believe it exists until other people see it too. You have to pretend it's all working. You learn the hustle. Make sure to post only smiling photos. Be positive. A break is just around the corner. Pretend people will show up, that someone will listen, even when there have been a thousand disappointing nights. Pretend you're fine that the discipline you've devoted your whole life to is still considered a hobby by the IRS. Pretend there's secretly an entire country somewhere that discovered you and respects your work, even as you wilt in the sun. Don't hate the songs for coming. Don't hate the ideas for visiting you. They see you as an ally. They don't understand capitalism. Pretend your heart isn't breaking when you're visiting a friend in their big house they paid for with their songwriting earnings, and they show you their special shelf of their favorite records, and right there is a copy of your record the one you made only 30 copies of because you knew you couldn't sell any more than that. Don't tell that story, ever. You are privileged to even be alive. Pretend exposure is enough, even though you've seen what happens when people are stranded in deserts or out in the cold. Doesn't exposure eventually kill you? Pretend it's all working. Mom will see this. When someone writes to say your words saved their life, say thank you. Don't tell them that you're nervous every morning about making enough money to pay rent. You only ever did this to save lives, including your own. But someone has to make money, right? The thing you're embarrassed to ask for? Imagine being embarrassed to ask for water or food. Money is water and food. Pretend it's all fine. You've got it so good, so many people have it worse. To be an artist requires a great imagination. You must believe absent any tangible markers of success that you should keep doing what you're doing. So you do four different things, five different things. People say, you do so much. Dude, I'm trying to survive in a capitalist fucking society. I never wanted the hustle. The hustle came for me. I wanted to create beautiful things. I wanted to learn more. I wanted to capture songs from the air. Ah, what privilege to even want such things. But what if we raise each other into more privilege, not just for our descendants, but for everyone? What would it mean to have societal wealth instead of personal wealth? Why the fuck was I tricked into believing that the money in my bank account is a referendum on my worthiness to be alive? Why do any of us have personal money at all? When you believe in invisible things, they call that faith or delusion. Long before God, you would bow to the mystery of what happens after death, of where the sun goes, of whether or not the rain will come. And then we sold our gods, as Olivia Pepper says. 
We sold their faces and their names for the sake of running shoes and baking powder. It's fine. We tell ourselves that we grew out of needing that faith. All that stuff was primitive and wrong-headed anyway. We solved the mystery, even though we still don't know what happens after you die. There is no time for mystery when you're in the hustle. You have to run to the next gig. There's no time to experiment, to let something develop. It has to work now, or you're not going to survive. Every year, more people drop out of the hustle, or they graduate to something secure. You notice fewer people walking next to you through the desert. You start to wonder what to do next. If you can get through another year, you dream of a solution. Ah, there it is. That old bastard imagination again. The kind of creative I am, because of my platform that I use, it doesn't lend to people really being always very supportive of it. Mm-hmm. Like, And when I say that, what I mean is if I was like a musician or if I was a painter mm-hmm. and I created this album, you know, and created all these beautiful songs about what I was feeling and I released that album, people would love uh-huh. it, you know? If I created a beautiful painting series based around what I was feeling as a widow, people would love yeah. it, you know? It's so expressive. It's great art. People see social media, they see comedy, they see TikTok and they're like, you're disgusting, you're milking your husband's death for likes and clicks, you're an attention whore. And I always think that's bizarre because I'm like, one, I feel like a lot of social media and what we what we do with TikTok and with sketches and that kind of stuff is modern day folk art, for one. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing is, it's not like I exactly had a group of women that found their husband's body or men that found their spouse's body in their 20s that I could just call up and be like, oh, I need to hang out with those friends who get it, that group of people. That doesn't exist. Like I don't, I am just now almost two years later finding a couple of people in San Diego who are around my age because yes, there are widow groups out there. There are support groups out there. Most of those people, the young ones, (laughs) the young ones are in their 60s. Yeah. You know, and it's like, like, sure, we both lost a spouse. I was only with mine for six mm-hmm. years. You know, I I also like, I'm not in the same place those people are. Those people have kids my age. We can't really relate to anything beyond I lost my spouse. They got to spend more time with their spouse. So it's a different kind of loss as well. And I don't know that I, I don't think I would have really found this group of people in this community unless I had done all of that posting that I did. I was reaching out. I was looking for attention. I was looking for people who could understand it and who could relate to me because I couldn't find it anywhere else. Now we have a Discord group. We have a community that is several hundred people strong of those Deadpool widows, as we call them, Mm -hmm. the ones that have that reaction to the loss of their spouse the way that Ryan Reynolds did in Deadpool where they're snarky and they're sarcastic as opposed to like you know a Hallmark version where they go and find love again in some Christmas town while they're somehow making a living off of custom rocking chairs you know it's it's a completely different type of widow (laughs) (laughs) that's specific uh totally I, I you know I really love the through line of that whole thought, like all those parts, because there's the moment where I'm thinking, you know, I'm having the like, what do I want to say next? And there's the, there's that. Well, I know also if you'd found that group right away, it wouldn't have probably necessarily fed what you have done in the last couple of years with your comedy and your writing. 
and your voice work and your podcast. And so I, I want to both acknowledge like, yeah, we need community and we need the creative outlet and to speak to that part, which I really love. You know, it's like I've mm-hmm. never really got into, let's just say, committing enough to play any instrument or didn't go to like dance school and become a ballerina. Uh, haven't really mm-hmm. done much more than kind of loving just graphite drawing on white paper. So like my creative outlets, it, the compulsion's never been there. But I but I will say all the way back to as as maybe most obviously in say fifth, sixth, seventh grade, starting to really lean into being funny and making people laugh and feeling that like reward of creativity. Mm-hmm. And it is. But then also learning that by the time you do the talent show, every goddamn ballerina and, uh, you know, all the other like official artists are winning all the contests. And so I would I just want to say you're speaking my language. I just want to acknowledge you for like I love that idea that what you've done with your comedy is like your art form of expressing the grief of George's death and that loss and what that did to you and what that does to you now. That means so much to hear you put words to. Oh, thank you. Yeah. You know, us, us comedy nerds got to stick together for sure. We're not the cool kids. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, maybe not. I mean, it depends <laughs> on the audience. So I, I'm wondering as you've I guess one of the questions that's emerged for me is, well, are there still times though when you do make a joke and you're like, is there a like a drawer where you've put the ones that have gone too far, or do you pride yourself in that's where I keep on a heading? Like I want to keep going in that direction. Oh, that's a good question. I, I do. There's a lot of stuff that I want to make a joke about, but <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm like, I don't want to get banned off this platform either. Do you feel that threat? <laughs> I've had some stuff removed. Wow. I've had some stuff what? removed on some platforms. Um, there's this one that there was this like adult swim no, uh, sound for TikTok mm-hmm. that people were like, it's hard to explain, but people were doing like different versions of mm-hmm. it where they spelled out like adult swim with some kind of like random fact or like, you know, hard hitting fact. And what I did was I spelled out adult swim with condoms mm-hmm. and I put, um, Five out of five therapists agree that it's perfectly healthy to um, sleep with people after your spouse dies. And they got that got removed. They were like, that's very sexual. What? <laughs> like, is that the word they use? I'm like, really? <laughs> yeah, it was like, they were like, that's like sexually explicit, which I thought was hilarious because I have another sketch about um, how to win a hot dog eating contest, which is not subtle at all. And I'm <laughs> and like, this allowed. is the one that got removed. Yeah, I'm like, this, I feel like that was more like educational. Right. Well, <laughs> the one with the condoms. Yeah, let's talk about that That and, and kind of that leading into the sexuality and sex kind of being a way to express grief. Um, mm-hmm. I, I'm wondering like what's automatically coming up for me and embedded in, in, in that idea that I know, I know you wanted to make a little time to talk about is that like, there's something wrong with it, that there's mm-hmm. somehow culturally that's crossing a line to go in a direction mm-hmm. of, of combining anything with sexuality and sexual freedom to grief or darker parts, heartbreak, you know, these other mm-hmm. parts of being alive, um, is that's that does that feel like what's getting pushed up against there and and where where do you want to go next with that idea did that play a big role in like you getting to have a conversation with me and being like I definitely want to talk about this like how long has that been something where you're thinking that matters here's why it matters 
right right from the beginning, actually, because I remember I called my therapist at 2 a.m. because I was like, where's my nightly marital bliss Mm. the night my husband died? Like my body's routine had been severely disrupted and it was like still having expectations, you know, and I'm like, how am I? I can't like. I'm like, I can't, I can't like take care of myself or like look for something else. My husband just died. I'm a monster. Why do I want this so bad? So I called my therapist and she's great. She's this like amazing, like little Russian woman. And she's like, oh, no, Tani, it's just totally fine. It is not bad at all. I was actually expecting this. And I'm like, you're expecting this. (laughs) I was like, you called me a hoe? I'm like, you're not wrong. But like, are you calling me a hoe? um, Oh, yeah. I'm I'm only allowed to say that about myself. You can't say it about me. Right. Yeah, I guess. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah. And um, she's like, she's like, oh, no, Tani, no. She was like really normal. She goes, I was totally anticipating this to happen because of the relationship you had with your husband. You guys were crazy about each other. You had huge crushes on each other six years in. She's like, of course. She's like, and there's no timeline. Mm. She goes, I wouldn't really recommend making any big you know, decisions that are going to have, like, massive, long-lasting impact, like, financially. She goes, you probably want to give it a minute before you, like, move in or get remarried or combine finances. Mm -hmm. She's like, I wouldn't recommend that. I wouldn't recommend, like, taking a date to his funeral. Like, but she goes, if you—she goes, whenever you fall in love again, she's like, whenever you want to just hook up with somebody again, she was like, it's totally fine. She goes, there's no timeline. And I heard her say that, and I'm like— Okay, you're saying that, but you could be wrong. So I'm going to call someone else. Five and therapists. That's I went where they Five therapists. <laughs> That's where literally yeah. it came from. Listen, I made the call. Yeah. Yeah, I, yeah, I did because I was like, well, you know, you like me. You're probably just saying that. <laughs> <laughs> like we're friendly. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like every everything I looked into was – they're like, it's totally fine. It's totally normal. And the ones that like have issue that take issue with it are the ones that are more leaning into that you know, fundamentalism, we we are a very conservative country, mm-hmm. you know, so we have a lot of those, like, ideals that are based in Christian fundamentalism, which is like, you know, if you're widowed, there's a certain amount of time that you're supposed to have this, you know, wear all black, shut yourself in the house, don't do anything, don't smile, but if you do it for too long, then you're wallowing in your grief mm-hmm. and you're not moving forward, and that's bad. So we have these, like— really specific expectations about what you're supposed to do, how you're supposed to do it that are very archaic and they're not healthy either. Yeah. Yeah, I get that. And um, which is what I love knowing you're putting what you do out in the world and the platforms you are because it's pushing up against that. And I feel like it's another way that I kind of felt drawn to talk to you because I think that a version of what you're putting out there is the declaration of letting a certain audience know, you know, like this is okay and this is mm-hmm. what I need and maybe you need it too. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. There, there's so many people that had this reaction where they were like, that's disgusting. Do you not even miss him? Did you kill him? Obviously, you didn't love him. If my wife did that, I would ju- I would come back and haunt her. Your husband, you know, if your husband was even okay with this, the fact that you guys talked about what would happen after he died makes him a cuck. Just on and on mm. and on. And it comes from that misogyny that ties in with that fundamentalism that is ingrained in this country mm-hmm. where people think of their partner as their property. And it comes from having that fear of being forgotten. Like, you know, if I I'm finding love again, if I'm finding physical satisfaction again, 
that means I forgot about him. And that's what people think is, oh, if somebody did that to me, that means they forgot about Mm. me. And it's just not true. It's not true. And when I got those reactions, those were also divided with the other people going, oh, my God, I thought it was just me. I felt so guilty about it, seeing all these other comments, seeing all these other women and therapists saying like, yeah, it's totally fine. It's totally normal. This is a perfectly fine reaction. They're like, I... I thought that something was wrong with me, and I'm so relieved to know that there is nothing wrong with me. You can get more of Tani on Instagram at that death pod and on TikTok at Tani Plattis. And you can go and learn more about the podcast and the foundation at deathishilarious.com. And we'll put all those links in the show notes. Nick Jana. Show notes, those lovely show notes. Show gotta notes. check them out and check them show out and show. Notes. Oh no 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 no! <laughs> oh oh, it feels good to laugh. <laughs> <laughs> How are you today? Oh, you know, I was I would describe it as like a a, a torrent of bees. That's how I am. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I wonder where that'll go. I wonder that where that what that'll turn into. I always picture like in those old cartoons when a swarm of bees was chasing you, like you jumped into a pond and you had a little straw so that you could breathe. Mm. And then they like circled around and then they got bored and then they left. But like, what do you do when the bees are inside of you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, like if they go down the straw in your mouth and into your well, tummy. No, I mean, yeah. I mean, they're already inside of me. How do you run away from bees that are inside of you? I know, but I'm trying to place it back in the water thing <laughs> with the straw. Because I do remember some of those cartoons where the bees go down the straw. Oh, God. The smarter bees. Yeah. <laughs> That'll get you anxious. I'm feeling it now. Um, well, you know, part of what I think is that that energy has to turn into something later. I don't think it just goes away. And, and so, yeah, it could turn into honey. Um You know, I think like when my son is going to his soccer game, how he has, isn't that wild? Like that we have the same familiar physical experience of like butterflies in the stomach, the nervousness. And what I realized when he told me that is that that's a necessary thing that occurs when we're getting ready for something we need to do. And that those butterfly energy is what it is before it turns into like actively being in the game. And so in a way, I wonder about like these feelings, these this anxiousness that you have and are bringing in here and, and maybe like all the hard emotions that, that we carry sometimes that maybe there's something to like that we're feeling and there's a chance to turn it into something else, but that it takes us like being with it and bringing it and naming it before we can even get there. Yeah. So, uh, good luck with that. <laughs> that's all I can. I was going to say I do to support you right now. I was going to say that's a really optimistic way of looking. Yeah, at you it. need to turn those bees into something. Good luck. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but also I just hope it goes away. I just want you to feel peace and contentment. Thank you. Hey, I have a question for you. Mm, yeah. I've just been finishing up this new book that is a lot about ancestors and the collective feelings and lessons and grief griefs we hold throughout our ancestry that maybe we're not even aware of and how much change can happen over a few generations, especially increasingly so with technological change and societal change. And uh, something that I've been thinking about that I'd like to ask you is what kind of advice do you think a great, great grandparent would say to you if they visited you right now? I'm thinking somebody from at least like 150 or more years ago, but from your lineage, you know? Hmm. Well, the first thing that comes to mind is that they would just, they couldn't separate me as a part of their lineage from the context of this like dramatic change in reality that they'd be having me as an access point to. So I wonder if like the jarring, you know, like version of this time and place that I am almost wouldn't, how, how would they communicate to me? Like, what could they possibly bring from where they, where they come from to here? Yeah. But that's, um, that's part of it for me is like, would they think that we're Kings? Would they think that we're like wizards? Would mm-hmm. they think that we're in like a sort of heaven, you know, mm-hmm. like how would they even process like what our life is compared to everything that they went through? Right. So that's like that 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 happening just if they just plopped in here. Uh that's almost what I would expect more than anything. Like they would just be so overwhelmed by all of it and me as a part of it that I don't know that they could sit down and be like, so here's my advice. Like um but then I think about that question maybe if we assume that this this is like spirit like they know this place. They know me here already. And if they're my dead, like that's how, you know, like some kind of omniscient, you know, perspective. And so I wonder if they could bring something back from what they lived through, however, it, you know, whatever it is, that that is timeless. You know, my hope would be that. I, I, I would hope that they'd be like, you know, you think all this stuff matters. You think it's harder. You know, you think there's more tragedy, more death. Um, more destruction because, because of whatever, however you, you, you know, like the, you know, whatever reason, but the truth is like, I, I can see what this is now and know that this still matters. And what is that thing? You know, like, I don't know what they would say, but I wonder if it would be something about, you know, like taking care of others, like locally, like what it means to like, like deal with how hard things are by loving those we actually have like access to and community with. Um, Or, and then again, this, again, this assumes my ancestors have any wisdom, you know, that they're not assholes or racist or murderers or, you know, whatever. Cause I think there's a, the trick of the ancestry thing is like what we inherit could also be from a lineage of, and and really we know this to be true, right? That it can be from a lineage of brokenness and fucked upness and sickness mentally and whatever else. So gosh, it's complicated. 
do you do you in writing the book did something come clear for you about as an answer to that or a version of it yeah i agree, I agree with all you say and for good or ill outside of all of that the thing that i think would be most on their mind would be where do you pray where do you where do you connect with god mm-hmm. and, and also your community like i i don't you know if some if they dropped in i think they would be like i don't see where you do that like mm. that must happen is it this glowing box that you're always looking at is it you know like is it all these things that you spend so much time and effort on like is that your god now like you know like i think that mm-hmm. would be the biggest thing on their mind mm. yeah uh, then suddenly you know it dawns on me that they would want to know where our dead are you know or something like that like why aren't your yeah. dead here yeah um in a way that hundreds of years ago let's say there's cultures in a time where you know even in our lineage of culture um and country where the dead were like photographed dead you know dressed up um the the like visibility of our dead the display of our dead um so yeah maybe something like that too kind of you're reminding me of that possibility. And so then, you know, to answer your question another way, it's like, it's almost like a time speaking to a time, mm-hmm. you know, a way things, a way thing, a way that things were speaking to a way things that are. And I just, I, it's, I think that's different from like what it would be like to sit down with someone, but, but it connects, you know, to sit down with a great, 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 great grandparent who's, who says like, how are you? Like, what is it like to be alive? And, and how do you deal with being alive? What matters to you? Like them wanting to find out what I care about and finding a connection in that conversation. Well, the other thing particular to that, that I think they would say is we're working so hard <laughs> to like give ourselves a better life, give, give my son a better life and his son a better life. You know, like I would hope that you have some like luxury or or ease or relaxation or protection from disease and stuff. And, uh, you know, clearly we do, but also when you think of all of that compounding work, I just keep going back to like, how did that not make our lives more easy? You know, like, like it's hard, be hard pressed to talk to somebody living now that, that says like, yeah, life is, life is pretty chill. It's pretty easy. You know, Mm. Um, we've, we've packed on all this other complications for everything. And, I think there would be some conversation about that. Like it must be so easy that you don't have to like plant all your food that you're going to eat and like dig Mm -hmm. it all up and, you know, like kill the cow that you eat, you know, like that must be so easy. And I think we would just be like, Oh yeah, I guess so. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Didn't really think of that. Um, There's other hard things. (laughs) Yeah. There's other ways it's hard to be alive now. Yeah. Yeah. Again, it just feels like this, like, the way things were speaking to the way things are through, through our lineage. Um, and I just wonder like how I, I just, I guess I'm left with a question, like how would we connect? How, how, how can I even now too then not just like in this imaginary scenario, but how, how can I, what kind of conversation can I have now that, that somehow relates to this, like what you're uncovering? Huh? Yeah. It would also be some like, like, Hey, and also it's a trend now to like, get back to the earth and like adopt old ways and, you know, like mm. grow your own food and everything. Mm-hmm. And they'd be like, what? <laughs> yeah. A trend. 
I don't know. Maybe they'd be like, oh, cool. Okay. But like, wait, you have robots and you want to <laughs> yeah. plant your own food still? I don't. <laughs> yeah, right. Just confusion, really. Just a really unsettling conversation. And then like, so nice to connect to you. Good luck back there. <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure it would just end one of those really awkward, like, like a bad date kind of, you know. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. Take care. Yeah. I'll, I'll uh, be in touch or <laughs> like a date. <laughs> Like a date, yeah. Good luck with that, yeah. yeah. <laughs> this has been really nice. Um, you sound insincere. <laughs> uh, yeah, good to laugh. Um, I do want to connect a little more to through that la- getting to the laughter um, <laughs> to to this episode. The the like the relief of laughing and and I'm feeling that today, like right when we got kind of got on the call considering, you know, what's happened in the last 24 hours and, and, and to connect it to, to this moment, you know, there's a shoot, the shooting yesterday and, and just this, like what I know about like making room for grief, but also like trying to practice like laughing and making room for joy, this like living joyfully in the sorrows of the world. It's like, how do we possibly do that with such tragedy? Um, But then also when we get to, when we get to connect through laughing, like even just being with you today, like the medicine of that, the relief of it. And um, I guess that's more of what I'm saying. It's not a question, but it's wanting to acknowledge part of my gratitude for Tani being on the, the show. I think I have such an inclination to coming into these conversations and be like, we're gonna cry. You know, like I got to get the tears going, like literally like <laughs> it'll be working if we're crying and realizing something that Tawny's left me with, which is like, it could be working if we're laughing, you know, and that that's much of what she does. And, and even just in the simplest way, laughing with you at the end of that thoughtful exchange about our ancestors, feeling like some kind of like catharsis in, in laughing, you know, even just a little bit. So, yeah, I mean, I really feel for or relate to her in that way because i think in smaller ways i have moments like today where it's like if i posted a joke online right now would people mm. think i'm an asshole you know mm-hmm. like even just like a a funny drawing or yeah, something unrelated yeah is that allowed it seems like there's like a 48 hour waiting period to mm. do any of that more and, and more yeah and yet i would love something light and funny, you know, mm-hmm. in my life right now. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, it's a, it's a sticky trap to get in. So yeah. I, I, I really respect people that have the bravery to be like, I'm going to be funny. I also am grieving. I'm not like a heartless asshole. I'm yeah. just, I'm choosing to be funny right now. Cause that's mm-hmm. my role, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, we have this open mic in person tomorrow and I know we'll laugh and often it like takes crying a lot before we do. And and like I said to Tani, you know, when on the day my mom died, I know I laughed and I laughed like well. And part of how I was even able to laugh that way is cuz I cried a ton, you know? And uh I don't want to just be grief-stricken. I want to I want to be funny. And and it's really where much of like the part of me that leads to you're going to die that's performative is far more bound in like being funny than it is in like being sad. And I just worry that the more the harder life gets, the more tragedy, the more loss. I I just don't want to be someone who's only grief stricken. Um, I want to make room for that, but I want to be like playful. I want to be silly. I want to yeah. I want to laugh. And um, that's a prayer. You know. Anyway, thanks, Nick. Good to have this with you. Can I tell you uh, oh. Otis's favorite mm-hmm. joke? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
if I remember it. I'm sure you've heard this before. Who's Otis? Otis is my stepson. Oh, okay. Uh, I knew that. I just wanted to get let everybody know. <laughs> how, how old's Otis? He's turning eight. I, I knew that too, but I months. wanted everybody to know. Okay. <laughs> I just want to make sure you knew that I knew that. But okay, so Otis, uh, this is, did he come, did he bring this to you from like school or a book or something one day? He's just like, from the streets, yeah. It's, the a, street. it's a street joke that he picked up on the streets. <laughs> no, That's I, funny, from the streets. All right, that I love. Go playground, on. I guess. It, I everything like comes streets. from the playground. Let's leave it at streets. He got it from the streets. Okay. And he lives in Oakland, so this is, these are the streets. Oh, yeah. Um, okay, so two muffins were sitting in an oven. One turned to the other and said, hey, it's pretty hot in here, isn't it? And the other turned back and shouted, Oh my God, a talking muffin. Yeah, I have heard that. <laughs> All right, okay, I got one. The funny thing about that is like he, when he first liked it like three years ago when he was five or something, he thought it was funny for a completely different reason. Like he, I can't even explain, you know that kid logic? <laughs> yeah, you try to get like they, to explain it? But he still thought it was funny, but like <laughs> yeah. he, he assembled yeah. in his own way, like the logic of it and we're like, Wow, that's not what's funny about it. That is okay. a wonderful part of paying attention to kids, like figuring out like humor, figuring out how to tell jokes and why a joke is funny. That's just like a particularly unique way of seeing like human beings becoming like maturing. Um, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. All right. I got one for you. Mm -hmm. um, what has two butts and kills people? What? An assassin. That's our time, everybody. Thanks That's so much. inappropriate. Actually, that no, we're is leaving it in. We are leaving it in. Oh, yeah. Mm. <laughs> oh, God. Okay, everybody. Thanks for listening. Until next time, we'll see you in your ears. Bye, Nick. 